Greetings to everyone in the precious name of Jesus. Um, this is Thursday night, um, the 23rd of November, 2023. And I'm Reverend Dr. Gene Archer, pastor of the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn in Toronto, Canada. And we are continuing our Bible study in the book of Colossians tonight. But I usually do a pre um you know a pre-study as it were just before i go into the actual bible study and so i would like to um do that now and i'll be dealing with um a question that was asked for me to deal with and i cannot deal with it exhaustively because of time but i deal with it enough to make us know what the Bible says about it. Gambling, according to the Bible. Gambling. Is gambling a sin? Um, I initially, right off the get-go, would say, yes, it is. Um, and But we have to now get into the text because it, there's no way the Bible really says it directly, explicitly, but implicitly. It's stated there. Although the Bible does not specific, specifically condemn sin, this is where we have to look into what the Bible really teaches about it. But before we go any further, let us pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity you have given unto us to pray as we did last night. And so we pray now that you will anoint me to teach your word. I pray, Lord, that despite all the cacophony of voices that are vying for our allegiance, that we will recognize the sovereignty and the lordship and the kingship and the mastery of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we continue to sanctify and set him apart in our hearts, as Peter states. So as we embark on this study, Lord, I pray that you'll bring clarity Pray that you will give understanding, oh God. And in, in the end, may we all be better off because of understanding your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Um, gambling. As I was saying, the Bible does not specifically condemn gambling, betting, or the lottery. You're not going to find those words directly against it in the Bible. But I dare say at this time that the Bible does condemn it in a more, um, in a broader context, just in case we try to slip through the cracks, as it were. And there are no cracks in God's word. The Bible does warn against the love of money. Because although the Bible has a lot about casting lots, you see it all throughout the scriptures, all the New Testament, people use that to justify gambling. But you cannot. Because what those casting of lots did, especially the, the, the Urim and the Tomim, they were to deal with selecting certain things, making certain decision makings, and then, but it had nothing to do with getting money or exchange of money. 
or to get rich quick and all that. That distinction has to be made so that people do not generalize and say, oh, the Bible talks about gambling and life is a gamble and you take a chance for this and that. No, we have to get into the specifics so we do not hide in the generalities. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, it says it quite clearly there that for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Hebrews 13 verse 5 says it again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has, for he has said, I will leave, I will, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we're going to look at a bit at contentment too. Okay. And also, scripture also encouraged us to avoid attempts to get rich quick. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase because you get to mature with the increase. That is important. Mature in the area of stewardship, mature in the area of, of trust and everything, right? So mass money is a great servant, but a terrible master. Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. And so as we deal with gambling, we see that that verse itself speaks against that. And Proverbs 23 and verse 5, when your eyes light on it, it go, it is gone. When, let me read it again. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Ah, that's a serious verse right there. Before you know it, all these people who won the lottery and they got become millionaires, most of them, if not all, their lives have not been what they expected. Okay? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. You see, that is so true. You can never get enough because there is nothing that can satisfy the soul as its creator. Second Thessalonians. And we are to work hard and earn a living. Word of God says that in Second Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, Paul says, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There is a principle within Israel. They did not have a welfare system. And the loan system had, a, had three different aspects of the loan system in Israel. And they, by the way, in a loan system in Israel, you're not supposed to make a profit of people who 
um, give, um, get a loan from you within Israel. And at, at the Jubilee principle, at the, at the time of Jubilee, the 49th year, all debts were canceled. Everybody got a first start again. So that, you know, the, the, the things in life would not cause some to be extremely rich and some be extremely poor. Now, the, the, um, the, the, the communist system and the, um, the Humanist Manifesto, if you have read the Humanist Manifesto, I read it already. Um, it, it states that um, you have um, thesis, synthesis, and and uh, um, uh, you have a, you have thesis, synthesis, and antithesis. In other words, um, what was again? I forgot this. I'm rusty here now. Yeah, 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 yeah. They begin with a, a system, and then. They um like that 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 the system the working class and there's a gap that comes so far that it creates a, a tension and to resolve that you have to get rid of um all equality as it were or anybody getting not equal and bring them to equality where um the actual system where everybody the state owns everything. Um, and because the state owns everything, then everybody has a pinch of the cake equally, if you may, and not everybody. Some people have a big bite of a cake, and then the other people only get the crumbs. And so, the, in a sense, that's how the system is set up in the in the communist system, and right, and it's a socialistic system, which is not good because it I, it stifles the creativity. Of people, and that's why the Jewish people did so well because they 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 were had a, um they they were a, a people who um worked and they had principles and they shared their wealth and so on, but not in the sense of taking away the creativity of others. If you have the ability to do things, do it. You'll be rewarded because people who don't have the ability, even if in a system a society where the system is very um very you know. You give you give away welfare and all of that. That destroys the human. Of course, there are certain situations where you need to help, but when you have a system like that, where people get a lot for not working, that itself destroys the humanity in the person, whether you like it or not. Okay. Yes, it's thesis, antithesis, and synthesis that's it thesis antithesis and and synthesis and so therefore the thesis is what is it antithesis against it and then the, there's a synthesis everything is synthesized and that was brought out that was done in in a in a um in a logical philosophical way and then then um the communist people i won't get into all of the details with it, it they brought that over into um the humanist manifesto and and made it into a societal thing and that is where communism came about um and that is not a good thing so we see in also proverbs chapter 14 verse 23 in all toil there is profit but mere talk tends only to poverty right and gambling focuses on the love of money and tempts people 
with the promise of quick and easy riches. And they do they tempt you and try to soften the um the temptation or the seriousness of it, you know, almost like is to call it gaming and you're like you're giving towards charity and all of that. And so that is what some people do. But the real mind behind it is not to give to charity or anything like that. The real mind behind it is to get a lot for little or nothing. Gambling um, is a waste of money. People waste money on all sorts of activities. Gambling is a waste of money because it reflects bad stewardship. What God has given us uh, to be good stewards of, we use it in a wrong way. And so, luck or chance, for example, casting lots, God's prescribed method of choosing between a sacrificial goat and the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, verse 8. Let us read it. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot uh, that for Azarel. Azazel. Now here's the problem. People use that and say, ah, God gambles. And so Joshua cast lots to determine the allotment of land to the various tribes. And the results were accepted as God's will. Joshua 8 verse 10. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh, Shiloh before the Lord. And there Judah appointed the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. Now, is that wrong? Is that sinful? Would God allow somebody to come and say, no. In other words, Ecclesiastes talk about um about time and chance, you know. No, it it, it actually means that time and chance is not luck on anything, but it means that God and His sovereignty behind all of doing this is, is, is that His will will be brought forth. And there's no putting forth of money to gain a lot of money. That is gambling. Casting lots is not equivalent to gambling. That distinction has to be made, okay? Although casting, gambling has a lot of um, taking chance and, and so-called luck and so on, but it is not the same. And I must admit that distinction because I read a paper where a, a, a Christian um, minister wrote to, to try and show that gambling is not wrong. And of course, I totally refuted it because it is actually twisting scripture and it will go against other principles of scripture. Then we are told also that Nehemiah cast lots to determine who would live inside the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 11 verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people um, cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remain in the other towns. 
You see, decisions were made back then because of that. But it was made because in doing that, it was God would, you know, it, how it turned out, it was God doing it. Okay? We get, we get also the apostle, the apostles cast lot to determine the replacement of Judas. Acts chapter 1, verse 26. I won't even read that one. Each of the occasions proved the truth of Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, just as I've been saying. And so, decisions were made based upon that sometime. Should we do that today? I, I don't think um, so. And um, some people use the scriptures to do that. But we pray and ask God's will to be done. So this is an area, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, it is, it is the result of whatever it is there that is the Lord giving a result at that time. Decision is the Lord. With the exception of the Roman soldiers gambling at the foot of the cross in John 19, verse 24, None of the instances of casting lots in the Bible have to do with betting or transfer of goods. That is important for us to understand. None of them has anything to do with betting or transfer, or transfer of goods. And so people would try to get around that by saying, um, using scriptures of context and try to justify gambling and the lottery from the Bible. The apostle cast lots, Acts chapter 1, is no justification for playing um, in, in um, the, the slot machines and so on in, in Vegas. Gambling by nature takes advantage of the mistakes of others. In order for one person to win, someone else, and maybe millions, must lose. And so, for a Christian to risk money in the off chance that he will gain even more is foolish. But seeking financial benefits from someone else's loss is, is, is unethical. And this is important for us to keep in mind. When you, if and when, if you ever do that, or if you're doing it now, you should stop. If you ever gamble or buy the lottery, what happens is that it is unethical because you're seeking financial benefit from other person's losses. So the casinos and lotteries, casinos, use all sorts of marketing strategies, brethren, to entice gamblers to risk as much money as possible. And it is stated in some information earlier that they often they offer inexpensive and even free alcohol, which encourages drunkenness and a decreased ability to make wise decisions. Everything in a casino is perfectly rigged for the money to be taken large amounts from as many people as possible. 
in the momentary thrills and empty pleasures that only last for a moment. When you look at state and, and national lotteries are a form of gambling. Lotteries tempt people with the possibility of quick riches and are marketed a way of funding education and social programs, as I said earlier. However, it seems that those lotteries, um, they actually bring more hurt to a society than help. A recent study show that households in the lowest income bracket spend at least 13% of their annual household income on lottery, in contrast to the highest earners who spend just 1% of their income on lottery. And this is coming from um, Bank Rate Survey, October 2019. In other words, those who can least afford to spend money on the lottery are often the ones who buy the most with the chances of winning the lottery being infinitesimal the whole system preys upon the poor and that's why when you look at these um poorer eras of our society you see a lot of um you can go in and they can give you a loan, cash money and loan and all of that, and you get tied up. It's like a snowball effect. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 provides wisdom with directly that directly relates to gambling. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So true. You hear all kinds of homes wrecked and lost because of that. Those who gamble cannot follow the admonition of Hebrews 13 verse 5, as I said. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, ne I, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13 verse 6. And so that statement is like the lottery. Oh my goodness, this is so much here to deal with. The lottery and trying to lottery is competing with God. Let me repeat that. It's competing with God. In other words, it's competing for your loyalty. No, God, there's no competition with God. Don't get me wrong. But these things are trying to come alongside and eclipse God. In other words, as, as, as you will trust the lottery more than you trust God. That is idolatry. And the Bible says, Thou shalt not, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 onward, Thou shalt not have any other God before me. I must be the first without a second. That's what Hebrew is actually saying. And so therefore, Serving God and serving money are incompatible. We are told in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, no one can serve two masters, as I've been saying right here. Why? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. Three things really rule the world. 
in it, apart from God. Power, sex, and money. Anywhere you see power corrupted and so on, all those three things are good under God's governance. But outside of God's um, prescribe or prescriptions or, or, or commands to obey, those things are the things that really are destroying our society. And so, gambling is poor stewardship of God's God-given resources. It attempts to bypass honest work. It promotes greed and covetousness. And it rejoices in the misfortunes of others. Because when somebody wins, oh, 70 million, they're rejoicing. But that 70 million came from other people's losses. A Christian should not be involved in gambling or in other forms of materialism like this. And so, let me reiterate. Buying the lottery is making you not trust God. That is why we are told in Hebrews 13 verse, contentment is another subject I have to deal with. Contentment doesn't mean that you satisfied your situation and that's it, that you're not striving. No. Contentment, Paul said, whether I have a lot or have a little, I learn how to be contented. Because anything can change. So therefore, when covetousness is a, is a, is a sin. Thou shalt not covet. And covet is to want something that others have, especially in an illegal way. In other words, that you, you try to, life does not consist of the abundance of things one has. So you're reflecting in gambling your, um, your lack of self-worth. In other words, your, your, your self-worth is measured by your acquisition of things, by what you have in the bank. The more you have in the bank, is the more you feel more valued. And that itself is unbiblical. So, so, so the more you crave for these monies at, 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 at those quick ways, um, is the more you are diminishing the sense of self-worth. It is when you are in a position of need, you learn to trust God. And you, you, you know that that does not dehumanize you. It does not change the worth of who you are because of what you possess. If you can own a, a nice house, drive a Bentley, no, you, you must, you know, those things are made for you to provide. I mean, if you can afford it, go for it. You must have value for things. And, and others who don't have that should not look on and say, oh, I should have. No, no. One thing I noticed in the church, though, and I had that in, in Acts of the Apostles, everybody had all things in common. That means people help people help others to come out of debt. But many of us, because of greed and, and lack of money, manage, money management, we get ourselves in debt. We are told in Romans that we should owe no man anything except our love. So um, 
there's much more I could say about um about gambling. Let me just sum summarize everything here. One, those passages that talk about casting lots in the Bible, and you see as I read them earlier in the study, um, they are not and cannot be used to justify gambling because that, that's not gambling. And that is actually no money exchange or anything like that. That is to find out the will of God under certain circumstances. Um, the, you also understand too that number two is that the Bible says that we must gain money little by little and not all of a sudden. If you if you if you if you have an inheritance from your family, that's another thing. But when you gain money suddenly and a large amount, it it has certain powers over you. But by gaining money little by little, you grow with it, you mature with it, you um and then you appreciate it more. It becomes a good you, you get to tame it, if you may. But it's like you it's like you take on this big bear that wants to drag you all over the place. That is when you get a lot of money. But by, by training it little by little, I'm using the bear as an example of money, you can get to you know, master it. Even when the bear gets big and you become a multimillionaire, what have you, yeah, that's good if you're a multimillionaire. Some Christians are quite wealthy, but guess what? The, the, uh, this guy here, um, I think his name is um, one of these earth-moving um, equipment persons that brought in these heavy equipment to move um, earth and dig out great big places and so on, um, mining and all of that. Um, the born-again Christian, and he lives on 10% of his earning. The other 90% he gives away to charity and helping people. The Bible says a good person lives an inheritance for his children's children. You leave enough for your children, yes, but if you have more, that is where you're supposed to be um, very helpful in, in helping others who are in need. Right? So therefore, we need to be good stewards of money in that regard. Israel had that principle with the Jubilee, year of Jubilee, and all the, the, the factors that a loan system, as I said, that um, had a time frame, and it was at three different aspects to it. And it, 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 um, it was not somebody would make him profit off somebody else's um, of a disadvantage. And so God set up that, you know, when you had a Jubilee time, you, you have your property and your, your field, you could not, once you harvest it, you could not go over it another time. And then the, the poorer people would go and get what is left there, and they could only go through it one time. And whatever was left was left for the animals and the wildlife and so on. That's how God cares for you, because the land is, is the Lord's, and the cattle and a thousand hills belong unto the Lord. So therefore, it is. it says, keep your lives free. These are responsibilities we have to have from the love of money. The Bible says money answers everything. And that, that in Ecclesiastes, that makes a context in that you can't do many things without money. And that's what the Bible is saying there. And so 
I will deal with this another time and go into it more in more detail. I'm just giving an overview right here when I talk about this. And so um, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content in what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Why is that quotation made there in the context of money? Because God is the richest. When you have God, you are richer than the, the richest billionaire on this planet. Because God has, he transcends all worth and value. And guess what? We have him. Even if we don't have millions and millions and we have God, the, the owner of this whole cosmos, we have. And therefore, that is what matters more than anything else. I, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And the word leave means to let down in a ditch. And then forsake means to walk away and leave you down there. Not just to let you down. But to walk away and leave you, and then if floods come, you can drown in that ditch, at a pit, as it were. That is that's the word the word play used here. In I'll never leave you, never will I forsake. Leave and forsake. Um, it means to leave down, as I said. And forsake is to walk away after you have been let down. God will never do that. So therefore, no matter how bad your situation is, and and poor, um, and so on, God does not glory. But let me clarify something here. There's no virtue in poverty, right? The poor, you'll have all, all with you. And we're supposed to help the poor and so on. You, you can't say, if I'm poor, I'm more spiritual. And if I'm rich, I'm not spiritual. No, you could have all the debts paid off, have a lot of money, and you're the most humble and spiritual person. And you could be poor and have all the, all the needs and so on. You could be the proudest person and, and terrible. So you, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that um, it is not, it is who you are as a Christian that determines your spirituality in that sense and the attitude towards money and all of that. And so Hebrews chapter 6, serving God and serving money are incompatible, as I shared in Matthew 6, verse 24. And so um, you cannot serve money and serve God the same money is a bad master but a good servant and if you get a lot at one time chances are it will master because it's bigger than your 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 maturation growth to handle that okay and you trust god to provide all your needs and so money money cannot give you the value of yourself in other words some people feel more more sense self-worth when they have a lot of money in the bank, and when they have no money in the bank, so to speak, they feel as if they are at a, at a deficit of their soul. That is, that is unbiblical. Whether you have a lot or have a little, your, your self-worth as a person is, cannot change. The Bible, the Bible says it, that. It stated in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. Um, um, talks about that. Do not worry about what you shall eat or drink, um, because your 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 life is more than, and the body is more than, more than what, your life as is. 
and your body, this body that is passing away as is, is more than billions. The more than factor is what is called, a, is something similar to like a mass known. In other words, it is, it, it one body is equal in worth to billions of body. In other words, the body is so valuable that the human body is more valuable than the whole cosmos in its physicality. And yet still, we treat it so badly. And then the, 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 your life now, which includes all that make up your life in uh, apart from your body, your thinking and your innermost being and all that, is more than. So I want to leave, stop with that. No matter, you say you want more than what you have. You know, strive for it in the right way. But if you're trying to buy the lottery and gamble and do all kinds of stuff to, to, to get that more than what you have in the sense of riches and so on, then you, you have a record. You're insulting the statement that Jesus makes there about that. That's why Jesus said, do not worry. And about what you eat and God take care. And I have a weird sense of humor. Sometimes I look at, I look at um, like the spider and the cockroach and all of those things. I say, listen, because smart they do have them brain, just a little bit of brain, and God takes care of them. I'm not saying if God can take care of those so-called, they're not valuable as we are. We are made in image and likeness of God. And God will take care of his people, even if he has to impress it on somebody's heart. I've had that experience already many times. Where I'm in great need, and and the time I get it is when I don't even say anything, and yet still I get help from people. Um, at the lowest time, you you tell me that is not God. That's no coincidence. So, trust the Lord, because if you don't trust the Lord, then the lottery is competing as an idol, another god, that you're serving. And you um, are putting God on the side and say, God, you're not supplying the need, and so on. And sometimes we use this passage um, in the Old Testament. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And so we think that, I've heard Christians say that, quote it to a minister guy, quote it and say, what does that mean? Because it means that is the wealth of the wicked, where's, how do we know the wealth of the wicked? The millions that the lottery has there. Look all the wicked, a lot of wicked people buy that. How, how, how are we going to get it? It's true for the wicked. The Bible did not, the, the righteous, I mean, the Bible did not say how we were going to get it. It's not for the age to come. It's for now. But how are we going to get it? That's God's decision to determine how we're going to get it. But one thing, Scripture can't control the Scripture. We're not going to get it. Are we not supposed to get it through something that God forbids for the love of money? Okay, I know that I've just scratched the surface and I could, you know, people could do a better job than me in talking about it, just like with anything else. And people have different insights in different ways. But I trust that you don't hear my voice and not hearing me anymore, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, so the bottom line is gambling is poor stewardship of God's God-given resources. It, 
attempts to bypass on its work. And it promotes greed and covetousness. And so when you look at somebody as a nice car or a nice house, um, and you not in that position, you think that the only way to get what they have and even transcend it is to buy the lottery because the chances are you're going to do it. And there's an addiction part of it too. People are addicted to this. It's like a drug. There, there are some reports that I was studying that shows that um, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is addictive. And people will um, borrow money to gamble as they will take out of their family resources to gamble, to buy the lottery. That is not right. And they always try to justify it. Oh, man, if I had all that money, I'd be able to do this and that. I would help people to do this and, you know, uh, trying to justify the habit. A Christian should not be involved in gambling. A Christian should not be involved. Well, you might say, well, in ch in churches we have these um these things where you have, you know, draw for this and that and get and that that. Ah, uh, we'll deal with that another time, because I have a problem with that too. <laughs> you know, we used to have some things in the church years ago where. You sing and you pay and you collect and it almost like it become like a little talk shop market in the church. No, sir. Give give unto the Lord. If people if God people give unto the Lord what what according to Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine, which is more than just a tithing, right? Um, then we wouldn't have any needs at all. And the Bible talks about um, if you give to the Lord, He will give back to you, press down, overflowing, and all, all of all of that. And so the key is, who is your Lord? Who are you trusting? And if you're trusting other persons, then that's idolatry. Okay. I will leave it at that. And when we're going into the book of Colossians now, it's interesting. Because some of these things that I'm talking about with gambling is going to come out in the study tonight. We started about 20 minutes later, so I'm going to go a little longer. If you have to leave, that's understood. Um, you can go back to the recording, hopefully. But let me go now to, um, to the study in Colossians. Um, in Colossians chapter... Yeah, there's a minute. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, that is the text that we are looking at tonight. And I will just say, it talks about, as we dealt with last week, let the word of Christ dwelling you richly, teaching and admonishing, admonishing one another in all wisdom by means of psalms, 
hymns, spiritual songs, singing in your hearts to God with thanksgiving. Not with, with thanksgiving. Gratitude is at the heart of this interrelational, antiphonal, um, reciprocal worship. Gratitude for each other and gratitude towards God. Although one can worship without singing, we can't ignore the emphasis scripture is making here on expression of praise and joy. Sometimes when I'm having a shower and sometimes when I'm in a good mood and so on, I just break forth into singing. It's like we sing more when we are elevated than when we are down. When we are down, we sing too to lift up ourselves. And so, Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to read a few scriptures which talk about how singing was so important in, in worship in the Old Testament. Worship is a way of thinking, a way of life, a lifestyle, not just when we come together. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1 and 20 to 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This was when they're in Exodus, when they were crossing on the, the, the Red Sea. They were singing to the Lord out of gratitude. Judges 5, verses 2 to 5, that the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offer themselves willingly bless the Lord hear O king give ear O princes to the Lord I will sing I will make melody to the Lord the God of Israel Lord when you went out from Seir when you marched so God marched ahead of them and God brought them victory. And others like Chronic, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 9, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. And 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, what am I to do? I'll pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit but also i will sing with my mind so spirit and mind here are rejoicing well we, we don't think like this not just all voices coming out it's your soul dictating to your body to ring out and fill the air with praises to god Psalm 47, verses 6 to 7. You can read that. Psalm 66, verses 2 to 4. Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31. Psalm 96, verses 1 to 2. Psalm 105 and verse 2. And so on. First Corinthians 14 and verse 15. And James 
5 and verses verse 3. 85 times alone in the Old Testament, God's people were exhorted to sing their praises to God. 85 times alone in the they, they are commanded to sing praises. But why singing? Why, why, why singing in particular? This is not just when we sing together that, like that. Why not just speak your praise to God? And, and, and this is important because singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotions. It's a melody of the heart that just words cannot just articulate. It is the harmony. It is said that the whole creation is wired musically somewhere or another. And we who are creating God's image and likeness, the birds know how to sing. If you know, there's a beauty in, in, in the harmony of expression in colors and sounds and so on. There's so many ranges of sounds that our voices can do. It is, I think, hundreds of tones. I'm just talking from top of my head, maybe thousands, but we just cannot figure out how to articulate that properly, right? We see they're singing in heaven. You know, there's rejoicing and singing in heaven constantly. They sang a new song and so on and so on. Singing simulates an intensity of mind and spirit. It opens ideas for feelings and affections that would remain by just talking. Singing gives focus and clarity to what words alone often make kind of, you know, hazy. It lifts our hearts to new heights of contemplation and anticipation. It stirs our hope to unprecedented levels of expectancy and delight. Singing sensitizes. Oh my goodness. Sometimes um, I see an arm on YouTube, um, some Christian groups and some non-Christian groups, so they would go into a, a mall or and, and, and they'd start, one start to sing and then all of them start to sing and everybody stops and look. And you could see the expression of delight on their faces. Even if you don't, if you're not a soulless and so on, you sound good to you because you're making your joys to the Lord. Right? Even if some of us can hold a note, we just break out in singing something we are another. It softens the soul to hear God's voice and it quickens the will to obey. It's easier for to us to obey when we are singing to God. You know? It, it gives me an outlet, brethren. When I hear singing and when I join in with singing Christian songs, one of my songs that I play literally thousands hundreds, maybe thousands of times now when I go in the car, it's set at that. Um, Great is thy faithfulness. The, the, um, the, I was sing, playing it earlier on this too. When you turn on the car, my, go in my car, it is, it is, if you drive with me, you're going to hear that song. It's going to come up sooner or later. Every day. And I can't get used to it. Okay? Singing. Paul has in mind neither just random notes and just aimless 
expressions, but it is to God. To God. Imagine you have an audience and God doesn't criticize you singing and say, oh, you, you miss a note here. No. It is your whole being. It, it, it focuses your faith and the object of your praise. The audience is Father, Son, and Spirit. You know? So important for us to understand to God because it, 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 it makes, it shows that we are vulnerable. It shows our openness. It shows our honesty as we direct our, direct our heartfelt adoration and hopes and desires to God. They are expressions of depth of commitment and devotion in our singing to God. Singing to God is a must. When we sing, we, we sing to an audience. Or we sing and we wonder people we're so timid. Here, God, we have an audience of God, and he invites us to do that in the word here. Sing to God. You might not like your voice and so on, but God enjoys your singing to him if you sing it with the right heart and trusting him. And it says, with thanksgiving. Gratitude is to characterize our corporate relations with one another and our individual verse 15 talks about that and our singing and worship makes it clear that gratitude is we must be thankful we see it in, in Ephesians again um, in chapter 5 dear verse 16 and, and somewhere dear it talks about um, about giving thanks always for all things to the Father through the Spirit on behalf of, in the name of Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Okay, Matthew Henry, who, Matthew Henry's commentary, one big volume commentary, Matthew Henry, it is said that he had some emotional, psychological problems, you know, because he, he was trusting God so much that people, he was, he was misunderstood. They thought he was a little bit crazy or off the edge because he was so, he couldn't, he was trying to convert his whole world, as it were. And it is said that he said, this is what he said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. This was when in, in something up to him in, in his diary, I should, should couch it in his diary of being robbed because he was robbed. I don't know, I was robbed too. <laughs> And many of us have been robbed in many ways. Let me be thankful, he said. First, because I was never robbed before. Thankful because I've been never robbed before. Whoa, what a way of looking at things. Second, he said, because although he took my money, he did not take my life. Thirdly, because although he took all I possessed, it was not much. Fourthly, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. What a way of giving God gratitude that I didn't rob. 
Gratitude and glorious singing into, unto God is to take place in our hearts, the text says here. And of, when it talks about our hearts, Paul does not mean that worship is silent and secretive. The heart is here a reference to the whole being, your mind, your spirit, your will, your affections, your soul, everything we are in the core of our personality. That is what a biblical reference to heart here means. The, the controlling center of all our faculties and everything that comes out of that. Thus, worship must be rooted in the depths of personal experience and springing out from that source, as it were, of heart worship and not merely worshiping with the lips, as Professor Don says in his commentary, D-U-N-N, um, page 240. In Colossians 3, reminds us of the most frightening text of all of Scripture in Matthew chapter 15 and verses 7 to 9, where Jesus denounces the scribes and Pharisees with these words, You hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of mankind. And so, worship by singing and shouting and dancing and loud declarations of loyalty and love and all that we see in some churches can be just vanity. If the heart is not engaged, if it's just a habit out of the, but if the heart is not engaged, then it is just a, like a sham. And uh, and the, and the, the passage in in um in the in Jesus sheer dear would apply to us. Sadly, I hope that is not so. If the heart is not engaged, then it is not true worship. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to the spirit of God from our spirits and according to the truth as laid down, genuinely, but according to the truth, informed by, by the truth of God's word. We can be orthodox and um, honoring um, and, and recognized by men and you know religious leaders, certainly of those days were, fervent in faith and vocalizing everything that they that did in a pious way but if the heart is not in it, it is not received by God. Whatever else our worship may entail, regardless of the style we prefer, and you, you, you know, there are so many styles, no matter how the form or freedom in which we express it, let us, brethren, labor by the grace of God and help of the Holy Spirit to sing to God with thanksgiving in our hearts. And having said that, I will close off in the next 15 minutes. I need about 15, 20 minutes now. Bear with me. 
And um, verse 17, we're going to look at of Colossians here. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks, do you see it again, to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17 And so, I do not know about you, brethren, but in all my Christian life, there is a tendency, and this is, and I'm going to slow down a bit here, and maybe some of us might want to hang up. Many of us, including myself too, have been guilty of com compartmentalizing our Christian faith. Now, compartmentalizing is good in your thinking when you have to survive certain situations, like in certain warships compartmentalize. So if you puncture one area, it remains afloat. I don't mean that. I'm talking about compartmentalization in a, in a wrong, in a terrible sense, biblically. Many Christians have their doctorate degrees in com compartmentalizing. What I mean by that, we pick and choose when and where and in what ways our Christian values and beliefs are expressed. <laughs> there are certain sacred areas. Some areas are sacrosanct. Our, our certain places are arenas, so to speak, in which Christian a Christian can it, 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 it is for them things to do. But there are also certain so-called secular areas in which they check their Christianity at the door and live almost as if they do not know Jesus Christ at all. We have compartmentalized our Christianity and the Bible. In a biblical sense, there is no such thing as secular to a Christian. Everything is spiritual, not spiritual in the sense of invisible. In the Old Testament, when the law was given and the Israelites, you had two copies of the law. One was outside for the people, another copy was inside, and the law was kept under the altar. Why? Because it was telling you that worshiping God is all of life. We are told in Deuteronomy, when you get up in the morning, tie it around your neck. You know, there's a list of when you go out, when you get on your doorpost. It was everywhere around them. The point was that every aspect of their lives was, every aspect was spiritual. There was no such thing as a secular area. Paul here also will not have it account to Colossians 3, verse 17. As far as Paul is concerned, there's no such thing as a secular space in the Christian life. There's no event, no goal, no endeavor, no activity that is exempt from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is no idea, no belief, no dream, no aspiration, no venture, as it were, that does not come under the sovereign 
Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why James talks about if you go in here, if the Lord wills. Even if you don't say it out loud, the Lord willing. Yeah, that is powerful study here. There's no achievement, no work, no accomplishment or word that does not exist for the glory of the Son of God. And consider the comprehensive, all-encompassing, universal scope of Paul's language here in Colossians 3.17. He writes, and whatsoever, the whatsoever factor includes everything without exception. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, word or deed is a kind of euphemism, expression meaning every sphere and aspect of life. Do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He said virtually the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. So whether you eat or drink or whether or whatever, he said whatsoever again, you do, do all to the glory of God. This is more than just when you sit down to it and you give God, you give it, say your grace. Let us note carefully, brethren, the language he uses here. Word or deed in Colossians 3.17. Eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10.31. What is he saying? These are what theologians call um, spectrum terms. S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M. Spectrum terms which means they are designed to be all-inclusive of every conceivable option. They cover the spectrum. One cannot say in response to Colossians 3 verse 17, well, there are some things in my life that are technically neither words that I speak nor deeds that I perform. By word or deeds, according to Paul, Paul is spanning the spectrum of all possible activities, whether they be physical, mental, vocal, spiritual, or whatever. One cannot say in response to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, well, I'm happy to eat or drink to the glory of God. Always delight to give God thanks for sustenance of your provide but my sex life my career my hobbies are all something else no by eating and drinking paul means all human endeavors all human experiences all human um um escapades or um we call it expeditions no exception allowed no exceptions allowed some of us don't like to hear this, and I'm going to get deeper now in the text what he's saying. We want to hold back something for ourselves. Just like in the Old Testament, one of the, one of the aspects of worship that made a burnt offering so important is that the offerer could not take back anything. 
everything went up, all the first ashes. In other words, the whole substance, it was symbolic of one's whole substance given up to God, who is the giver of your life and my life. So when we, we do not oh, oh, sacrifice our offer up to the Lord Jesus Christ, acceptable, no. But the principle and the mindset we need to have is that when we offer up sacrifice, it must be not giving and then taking something back. We see all the, the bad things that happened in the Old Testament when people did that. When Saul tried to do that, he was whole, he came at the bad parts and it came back to haunt him later on. Right? When, when, when um, in Esther, it almost wiped out the whole Jewish nation. That's a whole story. I don't want to get sidetracked into that. But but um, Haman, who was um, the king that should have died, Haman's great, great, great was the great, great, great grandson, and 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 because Saul didn't clean up everything, God said, "What means the bleat, the lowing of the cattle and the bleating of the sheep?" Didn't follow the command fully. When we offer a burnt offering to God. You can't take anything back. Present your body's living sacrifice, holy acceptable, which is a rational act of worship. The problem with, with in the Old Testament is that, um, no problem in the Old Testament. What I mean is that in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was dead there. In the New Testament, the problem we have is that a live sacrifice, somebody once faster said, keeps creeping off the altar. We keep taking back ourselves. We're taking back what we give to God. We say, we try to manipulate and justify reasons to not obey God fully. We want to hold back something for ourselves. Um, they, they want to lay hold of money or power or certain pursuits that they Talking about our people now, not not those of us here in this now, <laughs> outside the domain of the Lordship of Jesus, something over which they exercise independence and total control and authority. So you're holding back stuff because you're actually saying you're Lord of that, those stuff. You're Lord of that era. God is not Lord of that area of your life, but you're Lord now. You're Lord. You, I make you Lord of these areas of my life. But, but there are certain eras you're not, Lord. And in our prayer meeting last night, this came up. And interestingly, I, I, this was pre-planned to reach here now. This was not a kind of reaction or anything. We are told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves as some of us in the habit of doing. And Paul talks about, or the writer talks about, Habit of doing. Do not neglect the assembly of itself. God commands that we come together to meet. And if we don't, when you go to the mosque and, and these Hindu places and so on, they're packed with people, cars line up everywhere. But when it comes to the church, last night, this is just a serendipitous thing, this is something interesting. Last night, I went to Walmart to pick up some stuff, supplies before they close at 11. And I met a long time pastor I haven't seen in about two, three years. 
just met him in Walmart, picking up some things himself. And we started to chat for about 15 minutes or so. And he said, I didn't ask him. He said, Pastor Archer, I'm so discouraged. I said, what happened? I have a nice church downtown Toronto. St. Clair, big. Um, and on a Sunday morning before the pandemic, I was, I was getting in 250, 300 people easily, packed the church. Right now on a Sunday morning, I'm lucky, not lucky, I'm, I'm fortunate if I have 50. And it is so bad that I had to rent out the Saturday to some Sabbath people and rent out the evening service. We had some evening service late. We could have to another group to, to, to keep things afloat. I said, my God, you're good to encourage people. Eh? And then I'm dealing with this now here. And when I, when I look over my notes, I, I realize, but wait, no. This is, this is applicable to many Christians who are not coming out to church because they are saying that, you know, God, you give it that command, but I, 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 I don't have to do that. This is exactly what we're talking about. Paul won't have it. Don't try to evade this passage here by saying it only applies to the subject of worship in the preceding verse 16. Of course, words and deeds are involved in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. Yes, Lord. But Paul's, Paul refuses to compartmentalize Christian discipleship by restricting the lordship of Christ to something so absolutely spiritual in nature. Note again, he says, whatever, which is more and including the singing and so on in word I did, but everything else, it goes beyond that. Whatever you do, do all. So what, whatever and all are emphasis, emphasized in the text. And any of us, anyone who is saying, okay, I can go to work, I can go shopping, and I can at work spend hours, even if I work at home, sometimes I might go into work, and I can do all those things, but to come to church for about um, two hours or three hours, that's a problem. That is wrong before God. And, and, and so therefore, um, do all in the name of Jesus. There's no exception. Argument finished right there. No. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ even makes it more serious. It's found frequently in the Old Testament. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 10 verse 48 we were baptized in water. Salvation itself is available only in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 10, Acts 4, verse 12, I should say. It is in the name of, it is his name that forgiveness of sins um, is found. Acts 10, verse 43, and 1 John 2, verse 12 as well as eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. The presence of the Holy Spirit uh, also in, in, in John 14, 26. 
dominion over all demons in the name of Jesus. Luke 10, verse 17. You know? Um, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons were subjected to us in your name, according to your nature, in your name, the power of the risen of, of Jesus. At that time, he, he was still God. He was God, but not resurrected as yet. But the miraculous healings in Acts 3, verses 6 and 16, and um, the list, the Lord list you about in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus refers to for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ or in open and explicit acknowledgement that he alone is Lord and sovereign over all, or to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, or in humble admission that he is a source of all good things, even God causes all things to work together for good, or because of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And so, what would your life and my life look like if we were to actually express this? That literally everything that we did and said and thought or even dreamt, we did it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's take our speech, for example, what we say. How often before we speak do we think what I'm about to utter should reflect the fact that I'm a Christian, that Christ died for me, that he is worthy of glory and honor. Or we might say that is coming under the umbrella of in the name of Jesus. I'm under the lordship of Jesus. How might that affect our what we say in our saying it. Can we curse others and have the understanding in the name of Jesus? No, because we must bless and not curse. When we are quarreling, and as I read some time ago in James and, and in, in Paul and other places, you fight and you this and you that with each other. Is that being done in the name of Jesus? No! Not at all. And that includes everything we do. We shouldn't be doing those things. It, it in our words, covers every year of our lives. And so because we are, we are so good at compartmentalizing things, we can do all of that and it don't affect us because we think it is not affecting our spirituality. The Bible says, whatever and all. The Dutch theologian i read his books years ago my goodness in my early christian days <laughs> i used to read um um Ban of truth trust Ban of truth um books man those were the great guys coming from the reformers and so on uh, abram kuiper once said and i'm going to paragraph it paraphrase it i should say there is no one there's there is not one square inch in all of the universe which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. Let me read it again. 
There is not one square inch in all of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. That includes the thoughts in our head. The psalmist says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. In other words, it's in the name of Jesus. Words on our lips are they in the name of Jesus. We don't have to say in the name of Jesus all the time. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that this must be, this must be the governing thought of our mind, our minds. The steps we take, the places we go, the books we read, when we dial the phone and call and no one is hearing and seeing what we're talking about on the phone, the all kind of slackness goes on in behind the scenes, but not behind the scenes for God. The music we hear and, and enjoy, it is all to be placed in submission to Jesus and made subservient to his glory. And so as I close off this study, brethren, thanks for your patience. Consider for a moment all the many decisions we face in life for which this came to mind. What about gambling and buying the lottery? Can you say that you're buying the lottery in the name of Jesus? It's not happening. Or I'm gambling in the name of Jesus. No. We are talk. We talk about these gray areas that comes up in some debate sometimes. Well, that's not a gray area. Um, or something is amoral. The Bible says, if if you do something and and you, your conscience is bugging you based upon the word of God and so on. Um, then it is sin. Even if the Bible is not explicit about it, it is still sin. But the Bible does address every area of our lives if we have the time to study deeply enough to understand that. And that's why the Bible says in Proverbs that without vision the people perish. And we think that means a pastor or leaders have a plan for the church's future and looking into the next year and so on. That's not what it means. It means without revelation of Yahweh, without the unpacking of the nature and character of God based upon scriptures, the people cast off restraint. They run wild. There are no moral boundaries. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And you see, Israel went through all of that. In the book of Numbers, you see a cycle. And it not, it's a number of rebellions that Israel had. They rebelled against God. God disciplined them. They came back together in obedience. And then they did it all over again. It was a cycle. Read the book of Numbers. Some scholars believe that. That's why it's called Numbers. <laughs> anyway. How do we proceed when a choice is 
unavoidable. We should apply the principle of this passage and ask the question, can it be done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the glory of him? Is this a decision that will encourage and fa facilitate thanksgiving to God? Will it honor the Savior? What choice or direction will most readily display Christ as the treasure of my life and express his glory and his beauty through my life? And so the question is asked, brethren, to all of us, do we, do you compartmentalize the Lordship of Jesus? We really cannot be compartmentalized, but we foolishly think that we are doing that to our own hurt. We do this by confining him to activities typically reserved for Sunday or when we are in the presence of others? Or is our view of his authority and dominion as utterly comprehensive and all inclusive, and when I say inclusive, I mean his sovereignty includes all of our lives, all ears of our lives, all consuming, as Paul here is expressing in this passage. May we joyfully really sanctify all ears of our lives in his name for and for his sake and his glory. You notice everything is culture thanksgiving. So can you do anything in his name with thanksgiving? If it is evil and questionable and wrong, you can't do the thanksgiving. Can you neglect the assembly of yourselves together in the name of Jesus? That doesn't, no. Or with thanksgiving, no. And it covers all ears of our lives, every one of us. We must question ourselves. Can I say and allow Colossians 3.17 Govern my life the way that it's supposed to. Can I say beyond the shadow of a doubt and whatever I do in word or deed do I do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of sharing. Despite my brokenness and inability to articulate as required by you, yet still your glory, and I must decrease and you must increase. You can use anyone. I pray that your words go forth and accomplish that which is sent to do. Thank you for your word. Thank you.
for letting us know what you expect of us. And then you also enable us to meet those expectations. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom in Jesus' name.